0: From the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce, this is In Conversation With. Supported by Westcott's Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors. Presented by Stuart Alford and produced by Fresh Air Studios Plymouth.
1: Hello there, I'm Stuart Elford, Chief Executive of Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce with another edition of our In Conversation With podcast, live here from Fresh Air Studios. And today we've got a special, we've got a charity special, and I'm thrilled to be joined in the studio by Tanya Woodland from Jeremiah's Journey. Morning, Stuart. Uh, John Hamlin from Shekinah. Afternoon, Stuart. And, oh. D- and Dwayne Morgan from Argyle Community Trust. Say good night. Hi, Stuart. I'm sorry, of of offence. Good evening. Don't <laughs> worry. Sure. People listen to this at all times. So that means that we've covered all bases now. So it's good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. And it, yes.
2: That's at that the Truman the, Show. The Truman
1: yeah. show. Yeah, exactly. In case I don't see you, yeah, good morning. And if in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. So a charity special. I've got lots I'm going to ask you in a minute about your charities and about what your challenges are and about how business can help you and all that sort of stuff. But I think it only fair to give you that 30-second, and I'm going to be brutal on this, 30-second elevator pitch for your charity. So let's start with Tanya. Tell us in 30 seconds about Jeremiah's Journey.
2: Jeremiah's Journey, founded 27 years ago by a team of psychologists and other professionals who were attached to the mustard tree up in Derriford who recognised that there was no one-stop shop in the city for families, children and young people that were anticipating bereavement or had been bereaved and we have been supporting local families in Plymouth and the surrounding areas ever since with age-appropriate interventions to support those families through the most difficult times in their lives.
1: Great summary and on time so John, no pressure, tell us about Shekinah.
3: Shekinah has been around for 32 years. It started in Plymouth. And I guess most people would think about Shekinah as a homeless charity. We would say yeah. that we're far more than that. So we work with people who we would say are facing tough times. And that could be people in the criminal justice system, people that have mental health, people that may be street homeless, people that are battling with drugs and alcohol. And we offer quite a range of kind of interventions. You know, it's mm-hmm. not just about cups of tea and soup, but it's about education, employment activities, counselling, health interventions. So quite a broad range Range Of activities, including the restorative justice contract that we deliver across Yeah, depth. I want to come back to
1: that. It's yeah. very interesting. Yeah, I was looking at your website. You do a lot more than I thought. And speaking of organizations that do a lot, Plymouth Argyle Community Trust,
4: PACT. I mean, you're doing a hell of a lot. Tell us about PACT. Yeah, we're busy. So we've been doing what we do since 1992, but we've been an official charity since 2007. We are the official charitable partner of Plymouth Argyle Football Club. Our role is to try and use sport, health, well-being, and education workshops to try and improve the lives of people that are experiencing disadvantage. We also operate all the way down to Land's End, the Isles of Scilly, all the way oh, up right. to South Ham's Torbay Bay as well. So we cover about 3,000 square miles each day, and we try and use a combination of sport, education, and outreach to support those that can't traditionally access mainstream sport, whether it's through finances, whether it's through confidence, whether it's through language, whether it's through transport, you know, a whole wealth of barriers we try and overcome by bringing sport sessions right into the Part of the community. Brilliant. I mean, that's a big remit and a big
1: task. I mean, you've all got big tasks. Are you guys in competition with each other? I mean, or do you just feel that there's space for all of these charities and you complement each other? How does that work? Or are you only in competition when you're fundraising, sort of? sharp elbows at the table,
3: you know? Well, I guess for me, I mean, I think as a charity, we're quite clear that it's not about competition. Mm. You know, it's about collaboration and complementing each other's activities. So I think, you know, it is about working in partnerships. about look at all the funding bids that are kicking around at the moment, they're all about, they want partnership bids, partnership bids.
1: Yeah, we're working in partnership. Same for you, I guess. Dwayne, I mean, you know, you couldn't deliver what you do without working in partnership, I guess, because of the sheer size and scale of what you're doing.
4: Yeah, I think as a charity, we've had to overcome people's perception that we are football coaches, football teachers, football players, football fans, which is absolutely not the case. So I'm um, working in partnerships with both other charities represented today and a much broader network of partners as well. It is about collaboration. It's a great point. You know, the funding applications are tighter. There's not as much money to get. Fundraising is incredibly tough. And therefore you have to work collaboratively with the other charities to deliver some of the high quality and high impact outputs that you want to across the city. It's all about collaboration for us locally, absolutely.
1: And I suppose the most obvious collaboration I would think about for Jeremiah's being bereavement would be with St Luke's Hospice. Do you work closely with them. I
2: mean, certainly we do work with St Luke's on delivering sort of compassionate care-type training out mm. into schools and to professionals working with families that are pre-bereavement or have been bereaved. Absolutely, I agree with both the guys. It is about collaboration and finding those partnerships that are meaningful It's absolutely what funders are looking for. But I think there's a huge tension at the moment with local businesses and the current economic climate and they only have so much to give. So you absolutely, from our perspective at Jeremiah's Journey, being a very small charity, mm. we run on 250K a year, deliver all our services to beneficiaries of around 2,000 on that sort of numbers, we have to find the sweet spot. You know, we really have to find those businesses with somebody with empathy with what we do.
1: As you say, a meaningful partnership, because I think businesses have, or certainly most businesses, have moved on from just sort of having a pot of money that they can just give to charity. It's got to be meaningful. It's got to add something to the business. They've got to feel it fits with their values and so forth. And I was going to come on to challenges, so I want to ask you each in turn about your challenges, mm. but is the cost of living crisis affecting your an upturn in users of your service? I guess specifically, John, I'll ask you because homelessness is a big issue at the moment. you, you want to tackle that particular question about cost of living but also the other challenges and then we'll ask the others
3: Yeah, I mean, I mean, homelessness is on the rise and I think you know we need to be clear when we talk about homelessness you know, rough sleeping is quite a small part of homelessness I ask you about that. that said, I've, I looked at the figures this morning for July and I think we saw 83 different individuals in the month of July which is a bit of a kind of shocking figure but certainly as a charity we are seeing more people that in some cases are working mm-hmm. that are threatened threat of losing tenancies or being evicted, landlords switching from landlords to Airbnbs so I think we're seeing quite a massive impact on pressure on the charity from people that I think historically haven't been impacted around this word called homelessness yeah You know, it was often a thing out there for people.
1: We always thought homeless meant you, as you say, you are kind of whining on a bench or whatever. Homeless, where you're talking about families, about working people, about people who just through no fault of their own are suddenly have nowhere to live.
3: And I guess as we speak, there'll be lots of people listening that are worried about their mortgages, rates going up, etc. So I think it's certainly, yeah, I think we're seeing it impacting across a far broader client base than we've ever historically kind of dealt with. And I guess to add to the other part of the question about the other kind of challenges, that in turn I think has, we are seeing people with far greater complex needs. So I think the pressure for people, complexity of need has gone up. We know that mental health services access to has gone down. Not a criticism of mental health services, that's a criticism of government having cut and cut and cut and cut. So people that were getting services two, three years ago, no longer getting the services. So it's, to me, I keep saying this to you, it's a bit of a perfect storm. And sadly, I look to the future and I can't see it getting any better for the next year or so.
1: No, I completely agree. And, you know, I've said to you before, John, I think I've heard this thing that they say you're only two coincidences away from being homeless. Yeah, everyone thinks, you know, or a lot of people think, oh, I'm all secure, I'm yeah. fine, I've got a job, I've got this. But just a couple of things need to happen and suddenly your circumstances are very, very different.
3: In the words of the lottery, it could be you.
4: It could be you. It could. Well, <laughs> yeah. it could. You mm-hmm. know, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, doing challenges for Pacton. then. John's raised a really good point in the sense of, you know, there's this perception that, you know, it's all about street sleeping, but actually it's a much more broader, complex community that we're trying to support at the moment. And our charity is exactly the same. So at the moment, you know, about 20% of our work includes a ball. 80% has had to diversify to meet the needs of local people and the communities that they're in. You know, a large proportion of our work at the moment has had to diversify to food insecurity, fuel poverty, social isolation and loneliness, mental health intervention, you know, some crossover with John support and people living in temporary accommodation. But we are traditionally trained or qualified teachers or football coaches. Mm. So unfortunately, there's not an increase in funding streams. There's not an increase in free CPD available per se. There's not an increase in businesses wanting to put lots of CSR pots in to make the difference. So, you know, our biggest challenge is we're having to diversify our output, our skills, our training, our experiences with the same staff but to meet different needs. Yeah. And I think we were probably fortunate that, you know, historically people have wanted football coaches wearing an Argyle badge to go in and teach an after-school club. Yeah. Well, we've got the same staff, but now we're going in to deliver a, a bereavement cafe or a yeah. dementia support workshop or a military veterans togetherness group. It's changing times. We're having to dynamically evolve to meet the needs of people, but the funding streams aren't necessarily representative of the need of the business. We're needing to diversify how we get funding, where we get it from, and how we use it more acutely, I suppose. A common denominating factor in all this sounds like mental health, which I think we'll cover, and I guess... Tanya, your
1: charity in some ways is trying to prevent I guess people entering that system if you like, because bereavement's a massive thing to go through for people, especially young people.
2: Well absolutely Stuart, and I think that we do deal with what people would say is straightforward bereavement there is no question, death is part of living and so ultimately some charities you talk to their CEOs and they say "Well, we want to put ourselves out of business, that'll never happen with Jeremiah's Mm. journey and some children and young people and families need support because who can kind of weigh up what's been traumatic to one family versus another? But more and more, what we have seen increasingly at Jeremiah's journey is a rise in what is traumatic bereavements. Children getting up in the morning, coming down in them, finding that. A parent has died overnight, through that be drugs, alcoholism. And I think what we are at Jeremiah's Journey and what we're very proud of than our unique selling point is we are specialists in traumatic bereavement, so that trauma piece, which meant we were able to respond so admirably. I wasn't with the charity then to the tragedy in Keyham coming up to the two-year anniversary, just about to come up. I
1: mean, you did an amazing job during that, and I was fortunate enough to sit on the panel that was looking at where the funding went as well after the Keyham tragedy. And some of the stories we're hearing were just awful so you know but we were hearing great things about what your charity was doing to support people who went through that terrible terrible trauma and I was going to ask all of you but I'm particularly you because it's very I suppose raw how do you support the people who are doing the supporting because that must be tough as well if you're dealing as your job or part of your job dealing with these very traumatic things.
2: Well absolutely and thank you for asking the question because well-being is incredibly important I mean my role is in charity governance operations sort of fundraising but I sit in i <laughs> an office and I hear the calls coming in Mm. and you can absolutely you know people are only human it doesn't matter how highly trained they are the impact for people working on the front line and our bereavement service specialists you know can be incredible so we do have lots of things in place around their well-being but most importantly external and internal supervision which is incredibly important for them and peer-to-peer support lots and lots of peer-to-peer support and we have a great what we call within our charity great walk and talk you know Somebody just needs to say, Phew. and where we're based, which is in between Little and Aldi, we're in the HQ building. We're not on a high street currently. Mm. That's about to change. Fingers crossed. Oh, okay. But people couldn't come out there. You know, they can be down here in the wonderful sort of Royal William Yard or up onto the Hoe very quickly. Mm. And so it's kind of an unspoken policy. Somebody just needed to grab a walk. Really important.
1: Yeah. So remind me, if I forget, to come back to that exciting news about where you might be. I know, John, you've got exciting news about where you're going. But before we come on to that, I want to ask some of your staff working in situations, I suppose, could be unsafe, I want to say. Or they're certainly working with people who are, I don't know how to word it politely, at an end of society where they might be violent offenders. They've got drug and alcohol problems. How do you ensure the safety, but also the well-being of your staff?
3: Yeah, we're having this conversation the other day, and I think, you know, we have to keep reminding ourselves some of the kind of behaviours. And, you know, can I just say that for me, behaviour is linked to trauma. So behaviour is communication. So when somebody behaves in a way that the vast majority of people might observe and go, oh, that's just wrong. It may be wrong, but I'll be saying that person's communicating. And we know that 90% of the people that come to us is about childhood trauma. Right. So I guess we have to keep pinching ourselves sometimes that we nearly tolerate stuff. And then when we speak to other people about it, they go, wow. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to kind of say, actually, this isn't normal. Similarly, we have a lot of internal and external kind of supervision networks for people because also we work with people that sadly die on mm-hmm. us. You know, drugs and alcohol. We know that you know, drug-related deaths are still going up. So I think we have the internal, external mechanisms. And most importantly, it's about having fun. Now, I know that sounds a bit odd because we're talking about something quite difficult, but for us, it's absolutely about where we can grab some fun at work even with the people that we're supporting because you know Mm. life is pretty heavy and difficult so having fun I think is another key ingredient
1: Absolutely and I mean you've said a couple of things that resonate with me I mean just to say the fun bit you know the chamber staff came up and served a lunch I mean I know that's a very small teeny thing of what you do but what I noticed was the fun and we had some very interesting characters we were serving lunch to (laughs) who who were quite colourful but it was fun and it was an eye-opener for me but that thing about communication you're absolutely right and I never thought of it I never heard it articulated like that, but I always remember thinking you know, when I was a police officer, it was about the why. Why is someone behaving like that? And just because someone hasn't got an apparent right to behave in a certain way or an apparent right to feel how they feel, they feel it. Just because they shouldn't doesn't mean they don't. And I think that's really, really important. And I guess your charity, looking at
4: Duane here, you're trying to prevent people going down this route in it ultimately, are you? I mean... Yeah, what we kind of internal language, you know, almost a bit like a first response. You know, we're not a statutory service and no one's referred to us. We haven't got criteria Criterias of why we can or can't engage with people like certain services, maybe a job centre or a food bank. You have to hit certain criterias or not social prescribing as well. You know, we're a bit of a luxury in a sense of we're slightly different. We've got a USP. We always kind of say we're not a police officer. We're not a housing officer. We're not a social worker and we're not a teacher. But we're delivering a lot of those services informally through kind of sport, health, well-being and movement. So the beauty of our approach to being able to engage them is we're different and similar to John. They're different. They're people first, service second. And there's not a script that we have to follow. There's not a set of questions that we need to ask. So we can come in very informally. And you're absolutely right, you know, a lot of our work at the moment, we're working in some of the most deprived states in Plymouth. So in some cases, some of the most deprived states in the UK, working with young people, like the guys have said, dealing with kind of adverse childhood experiences, so to try and support them before they to the drugs and alcohol or crime and antisocial behaviour. A lot of people that have recently lost work but aren't quite on the cusp for certain benefits, you know, to go in and do some stuff around food support, around empowerment, around employability. Our job very much is to come in with a slightly different approach through the side, in which case is a football badge and a sport background and say, look, that's a common language. How can we engage you? And a good Fruit. door opening for
1: you, I suppose, to say, you know, I mean, you're on the rise. I mean, you're in the championship now. We're on the
4: rise. We... Come on, you greens. And Absolutely. All that. Absolutely. We, we... Is that helping you, the prominence of going up? Or it, is it... it does help. We can't hide away from the fact the success of the football club does have some kind of correlation to the success of the trust. We do receive some funding from the Premier League and the Football League. So some of our kind of core projects are kind of ring fenced with your mm. Sky TV and your BT deals. So every time your Sky bill goes up, apologies, but some money does filter down to community sport oh, so <laughs> yeah I'm not anti-arise in Skyville but um <laughs> You know, we can mm-hmm. do stuff differently. We do a lot of programmes in partnership with great charities, and the one thing we're very keen that we don't do is duplicate. We add yeah. value. I think mean, that's really important across the charitable sector.
1: And you've worked with, I mean, these guys, but you've also I noticed on your website, you've worked with Dash of Silver, who I've interviewed down in here, and Dartmoor Zoo, they've been interviewed in here with Ben Me. I mean, some great businesses you're working with, or great charities, organisations, and partnerships.
4: Yeah, and again, just kind of highlights the examples of what we're doing. So, I like, say, in kind of a John context at the moment, few poverty, displaced families, living in temporary accommodation, Run a project a few years ago now called the Great Grass Project, which was working with homeless rough sleepers to try and get them back into work through ICT. Some stuff around trauma-informed approaches with Jeremiah's. We, too, worked with them on the Kiam tragedy, supporting local young people that were scared to come out of their houses to come and play community sport to stop that isolation and loneliness. Dasha Silver was more of a fundraising context. You know, We both had a unique in to the kind of male audience demographic. And Dartmoor Zoo, that was more around social prescribing, using green spaces and outdoor activity to try and improve people's health and well-being i
1: well, Ben was telling me an amazing
4: story there
1: about how just putting a plant on the desks of children taking exams is proven to up the mark they get. Isn't that incredible? So he was saying just getting people out into green spaces and what have you. Great organisers you're working with and doing a breadth and depth that seems to be huge. I mean, how many people
4: do you employ to do all that? Because it seems like you must need hundreds and hundreds. Yeah, we've got, at the moment, we've got 92 full-time staff. We've right. got a bank of about 150 sessional staff or part-time staff, but that's covering anywhere from the Isles of Scilly, where we are at the Moment, like I say, up to the kind of Torbay region. We go as far as kind of Bude and Holsworthy. We don't go any further because it's ex territory. So there's a bit of a gentleman's agreement. I think, with the exception of Norwich over in East Anglia, we cover the biggest geographical spread as a charitable trust. So um, yeah. we're really proud of that and engage with the challenge. At the same time, the complexities of that make it quite a tough organization to run. And I guess the other end of
1: the scale if you don't mind me saying because you alluded to yourself you're a small charity tanya with just a couple of paid employees
2: well we actually have 5.4 full-time equivalent seven of us but as i say so yeah very very small team but supported admirably by just some phenomenal volunteers with the appropriate background so people that have had backgrounds in children's mental health they've worked within the cam service they might have been psychologists they might have been teachers as long as they've had a child youth development developmental background Mm. and they come to us and very kindly volunteer their time subject to training etc and that helps us run our core program so three times a year we run a seven week group program for younger children for sort of teenagers and parents the carers that have Mm. been bereaved and provide those appropriate sessions but they're not prescriptive you know they can be made more individual to the children youths and families that we're Mm. supporting at that time and that's where our volunteer teams are absolutely crucial.
1: Charities would be lost without volunteers. I remember when I was chair of St Luke's back then which was a few years ago I think we worked out we saved over two million pounds a year by use of the volunteers and so I was so pleased that they got the Queen's Award for Voluntary Service. Absolutely. They're, they're Recognise that huge impact of volunteers and what about yourself John I mean you're I suppose somewhere in the middle in terms of size but do you have volunteers do you have challenges getting staff to work in that sort of environment
3: we have about 65 staff do working you know, across to right. Torbay and some of our contracts go Devon Cornwall and the Isles are silly you never leave the Isles are silly off they always get upset when you do <laughs> quite a big bank of volunteers it's never something we kind of publicise but probably 50% of the people that work for us are people that have formerly used services okay so these are people that may be through the criminal justice system, may be through drug alcohol treatment systems.
1: That's good and bad, isn't it? Is that good in the sense they can totally relate, but does well, it give you challenges?
3: I get challenges with staff, whether they're someone who's used <laughs> services or not used services often, kind of thing. And actually, the kind of client verse easy bit, isn't it? So we don't actually have a problem recruiting, which is kind okay. of interesting. Enough. Can I just very quickly go back to something Please that, do, that, yeah. that I think was said earlier about being creative, and I think part of the problem for all three of us will be that when you're talking to funders, funders have a very clear prescriptive view of what you should be doing, which in my view, and I've got to be careful saying this, doesn't often relate to what we know needs to be done. They will have, you know, we'll give you £10, John, because we want you to deliver these outcomes. And you kind of go, why? But actually, the people I support don't want those outcomes. They want those outcomes. So Mm. part of our issue is it sometimes feels that funders are always looking for the next new thing. And what I would say for all of us, without speaking on behalf of people, is that just kind of fund us for what we do. And one or two of the big funders have taken that approach now, saying, no outcomes, no outputs, here's a pot of money. Go and do something for two years and come back report. Take the look. And I think
1: that's sure, sure yeah. what you've done. And Tanya, you were clearly, yeah. vigorously agreeing there. Yeah.
2: Well, absolutely, because I think that for Jeremiah's journey, we've been doing this an incredibly long time. It's incredibly well-researched. Some phenomenal, very clever people have written paper after paper. It's proven that our formula works. Mm-hmm. Families tell us it works. The outcomes are exceptional. And adults that have been through our services of children are now volunteering with us. They've become mm-hmm. ambassadors with us so we know that it's tried and tested. But I absolutely agree with John you know the bottom line is that funders want you to be bringing them a new pilot project yeah. what are you doing differently and actually yeah. what we need is to fund our what, core what service yeah
1: yeah we have this with government funding for business support some great edict comes down were on high about how to deliver business support I thought nobody asked me what business wants i'd rather someone
4: actually asked me than decide is it, you find the same with yourself completely agree it's a great point we get some quite large national scale funding pot for our position within the kind of football league network but again, they come with really rigid, quite structured KPIs that quite simply, a lot of the time, are kind of empirical, numerical, where you can tick a few registers and say you've done a great job. But you haven't. We can't infer that. And there needs to be a much deeper process to allow us to do our thing, and we quite often get a pot of funding with a criteria. But unless you live in London or Manchester or Liverpool, the youth crime or antisocial behaviour or trends of behaviour or exploitation levels are completely different. different down here. Yeah, yeah. You know, you can go from one of the projects we run in Stonehouse, it's a completely different young person to the antisocial behaviour project we run in Plimpton. Mm, yeah. And that's eight miles. Yeah. You know, absolutely. so to have national funders can be a real positive to a charity, and yeah. we benefit from that. At the same time, we need to have that ownership and autonomy to set hyper-local yeah. criteria. Yeah. That's how we're going to get success. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone understands you've got to be answerable for the money you're
1: given. You've mm-hmm. got to show impact, but it's that ability to show it in a broader way than just, a, as you say, a tick-the-box, you've met a certain criteria.
0: The conversation will continue. But first, Chamber Chief's quick-fire questions.
1: Hello there and welcome back to another Chamber Chief's Quickfire Questions where I meet one of our members and have a very quick chat before interrogating them at speed with rapid fire questions over two minutes. And I'm delighted today to be joined by Emily Pearson. Come in, Emily.
5: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: That's all right. Now, Emily is, I have to say, one of the directors of Devon and Plymouth Chamber, which has just made me realise that I can't be too unkind to you because technically I think you're probably my boss. But also, your role is changing, isn't it? currently head of business engagement at south devon college and where are you off to
5: yeah so i'm off to join penn and group so southwest water to become their apprenticeship manager so it's very exciting
1: so what's your job going to be well i mean what i know obviously you've just given us the title but what does that mean what you want to do
5: well, i'll be leading on all of their sort of apprenticeship programs across the whole organization supporting them with putting existing employees on apprenticeship programs that are suited to them and also recruiting employees onto apprenticeships to support them build their workforce so it's very exciting they want to have a really robust skilled workforce for the future and they've got a really ambitious target to meet as well so they're very very much committed to training development and more specifically at the apprenticeship programs that are available
1: and who better to deliver it than you
5: thanks no
1: pressure right so emily are you ready for this two I minutes think so. i'm course. terrified if i'm honest. oh don't be i'm a big puppy dog there's nothing to be scared of at all however before you get yourself too wound up we'll start our questions and your two minutes starts now
0: chamber chief's quick fire
1: questions what person would you most like to meet too late best advice you were ever given
5: um always try your hardest
1: uh have you got a favorite quote It will be fine. Always fine. (laughs) That's good. I heard one recently. This too shall pass. Is good. Good or bad. Um, Favorite band, singer, or album?
5: Um, Frank Turner. Uh, Frank Turner.
1: Never heard of him. Um, Business you wish you owned?
5: Uh, uh, I would absolutely love to own a coffee shop.
1: Really? Okay. Uh, If you could eradicate one thing from the world, what would it be? Poverty. Yeah. Okay. Uh, how do you relax? I don't. <laughs> good one. Cattle dog.
5: Uh, dog. Any or lt Any.
1: Good. Uh, suit and tie or jeans and t shirt.
5: uh suit and tie.
1: No, I, I, I thought you were a jeans <laughs> and t shirt kind of person. I think you're just answering how you think I want the no. answer. Um, curry or pizza.
5: Curry.
1: Yeah, good answer. Uh, P- Partner's star sign. Taurus. Are you sure? I'm going to press buzz. You should you should answer quicker than that. You're not long married. What's your anniversary date? I'll give you a chance to re- redeem yourself.
5: 30th of April.
1: Okay. Yeah. Any tattoos you're going to admit to?
5: Um, a few.
1: Yeah. None. None that you're going to admit to. Okay. Uh, beach or city?
5: Uh, city. Not good
1: with the sun. Uh, no. Okay. Best thing about Devon.
5: The beaches, but I've just said I hate some. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what's the worst thing about Devon?
5: Um, the poverty.
1: What's the best business support organisation? No pressure.
5: Oh, Devon and Plymouth Chamber. Absolutely. Uh, and what's
1: your favourite book? Oh, I
5: don't read very often.
1: Oh, terrible answer. Right at the end. And your two minutes has ended now. So, Emily, look, thanks. That was a bit of fun. I hope that wasn't too painful for you
5: very good thank you some
1: good answers in there who was this singer a band person i'd never heard of
5: yeah so frank turner is one of my fits so yeah he's just a solo well he's got a band but promotes himself as frank turner so if you like a bit of punk and a bit of rock he's your man
1: you're secretly a punk rocker are you you heard it here first <laughs> emily pearson who is the was your title Head of apprenticeships for pennon apprenticeship manager apprenticeship manager for pennon is actually a punk rocker there we go breaking news Emily, thanks so much for joining us. Just a bit of fun, but we really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for supporting the Chamber as a director. I know you do everything for no money and put lots of time in. You add huge value to the board, and we're really, really grateful to have you on board. Thanks for joining us, Emily Pearson.
0: Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Stuart. Follow the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce on Twitter at Chamber underscore Devon and search for us on LinkedIn. Make sure you don't miss out on future episodes. Hit subscribe now. In Conversation With, supported by Westcott's Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors. Now, back to the conversation.
1: So if we're talking about impact, some success stories, I guess. And I'm, sorry, John, I'm racking my brains to think of a story you told about a guy who was in prison and was going to be asked by a lady, a very posh lady, about what he did. And was it about running a laundry or something?
3: So a short version of this story is that we were on the stand at the Chelsea Flower Show. So we were involved with the Eden Project doing a stand and We did some growing work for them in Torbay. And I was asked to go to the VIP day, the day before it officially opens to all the public to get all these very posh people coming around. And I was with this guy who was on release from Wandsworth Prison, temporary licence. And he kind of said to me, what am I going to say if somebody says... What do I do? And I said, Look, You can say what you want. I'm not going to think any less of you. Mm. Anyway, eggs are eggs. This lady came and said, What do you do? And he said, uh, I work in a laundry, which I thought was a great answer because if you know the prison system, he works, <laughs> yeah. works in a laundry. And I thought he'd got at that one. But she carried on and she kind of asked him a load of other kind of questions about, Oh, the, she seemed to get very excited about laundries for some reason said <laughs> that the one that she used was a national chain. Was his a national chain? And he said, Yeah, yeah, I guess you could say so, which it would be prison So, yeah. <laughs> and, and eventually she, she asked him the name of the laundrette and he kind of said, HMP Wandsworth. There was this magical moment through all that that I could nearly see her processing what you just said. Yeah. And they ended up having a conversation for five or ten minutes afterwards. And then she came back to me and kind of said, do you know what? the first time I met somebody in the prison system? And, yeah. You know, what I've learned is that uh, good people make bad choices. Yeah. And that to me was just beautiful. It was a beautiful moment, yeah. but funny at, at the same time. Well,
1: quite. And I did want to kind of get the funny bit yeah. out of it, but I also wanted to get there's some great stuff being done and you get some successes. You must all have little bits from your own charities where you think, oh, that was a moment where I just feel like we really achieved something, where you got a, a bit of joy out of it.
2: Absolutely. And I think for us, very succinctly, a young lady who came through our service at seven years old, Bereaved by the suicide of her dad ended up being on our staff team so she was so inspired by the work and yeah. the program that she'd come through so inspired by one of our co-founders professor Jackie Stebman, who still volunteers for us incredibly active now she's still a trustee volunteers with us every wednesday and she remembered everything the program she'd been through as a child and actually come onto our staff's team as an assistant psychologist worked with us for a couple of years and is now doing a doctorate in psychology at Plymouth University brilliant, and credits Jeremiah's journey with, you know, stabilising her during that childhood period. So that for us is magical and to hear her speak now. And, you know, we have many stories like that, but I guess that is one of the most sort of poignant, if you like
1: wonderful and Dwayne you must have a whole host of them but you've we got have. something that stands out in your mind a moment where you thought
4: this is really making a difference yeah I suppose one thing you know during the pandemic we all had to diversify what we did and you had to try and work out where you sat in different cliques or business bubbles and you know it was during the pandemic that we kind of shut down coaching football and started to deal with food poverty and food insecurity as, as many charities did you know as a way of kind of overcoming furlough and so on and um, when we started to operate in that space there was always a I'm not gonna say a stigma but there was maybe a bit of a perception that what's a football club doing in This space. What does a football Mm. club know about food insecurity or food poverty? But in partnership with Ginsters, we of course launched Project 35. We had to report back last week how year one went and we churned out about 40,000 lunches. We've done about four and a half thousand lunches to families living in temporary accommodation across the city. 180 local people sign up to be a pledger, pledge 35 hours of the year to help in local food banks. And we've supported about three and a half thousand children access free sport across the city. So that for us has impacted so many people, but one person who was a beneficiary of some of the food support is now spending about 15 to 20 hours a week supporting us to support others, which is just an amazing journey. So just remind us, Project 35, why is it called that? Well, 35% of children experiencing daily poverty across Plymouth. So we work with Plymouth Children in Poverty to kind of ring fence or sound that out. But actually what we did find out was that was actually out of date pre-pandemic. Pre Brexit, pre cost of living. So, you know, and like John said, the perfect storm is coming. I'd like to think them figures are probably closer to Project 45, you know, maybe even more. We're really grateful for Ginsters to allow us to be in that space. But I think that just shows the synergy and the need for collaboration because temporary accommodation, trauma informed approach, that's just in this room today. There's hundreds of other charities that do some great work in the city, but I suppose we might get to it. But in terms of a what does utopia look like? Yeah. A Devon chamber for charities, you know, where you actually get time to all sit in a room and actually hear what other people are doing and how. How that's impacting and that may exist you know there's a cost of living task force and there's a children in poverty network and there's a food alliance but just having time to come away from oh, your desk and it's honestly on my list
1: i would love to help host and facilitate something where you can all share best practice i mean i'm resource limited but i'll pick that up with you afterwards because it's something i would love to do very much that's i was always exciting. a big fan of sharing best practice you know peer networks are proven to make businesses more successful. So why wouldn't they charities? And in fact, a little plug for the chamber here, if you're a member of the chamber, you're three and a half times more likely to survive in business than if you're not because you're a member of a peer network. You've got a support Mm. network around you. So yeah, I'll pick that up with you after this podcast because absolutely we should be sharing all that best practice i, I mean, I guess
3: so going back to my earlier point the part of the reason my observation of 20 odd years at chicane is that why we don't share is because historically funders have developed this culture of competition so when Dwayne stands up and says like i might be sitting there thinking mm, that's a good idea i might put that in my bed yeah. so i think in some respects for a lot of charities there's been quite a lot of protectionism around this yeah. stuff but you
1: can work on it with him then
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. absolutely, Because I think it's absolutely about sharing it. You know, Mm. absolutely.
1: I've got to tell you, it just reminds me of a little moment. You were talking about moments in your charity. When I was chair of St Luke's Hospice, we were nominated for a Queen's Award for Voluntary Service and the assessor, who's a deputy lieutenant, came and sort of examined us and he turned up, he wouldn't mind me telling you this, he had a stinking cold. He was in a, probably a pretty foul mood it was peddling with rain and we're showing him around and i'm thinking oh this you know couldn't go off to a worse start and then there was a young lady there who was volunteering from africa who had no money at all and she had found out that one of the patients it was his birthday and he'd had no cards so she walked five miles to get to a shop to get a card and come back and give it to him and she was telling this story to the assessor and i saw him start crying and i thought well if we don't get a qavs now we failed failed. <laughs> you <laughs> know. It was a really moving moment. Sorry, Dwayne, I cut across you. You were going to say something about
4: collaboration and, and uh, working, I think. Yeah, I think it certainly got better. You know, yeah. I think one thing if you have awesome. to reflect back on the, the pandemic, you know, and the current cost of living crisis, it has Encouraged or forced people to work closer together. I always get embarrassed when I come on stuff like this because I've been sat next to John for 20 minutes and there's already stuff in my head where I feel so guilty because how have we not engaged about that already? Yeah. We do some stuff around restorative justice in HMP Dartmoor and HMP change Word, but I'm not completely aware of John's service of how we can refer and mentor them when they're out in the yeah. community. And I always feel so guilty when I leave because... Although we try not to work in this professional football silo, at times resource, time, yeah, KPIs, you end up doing and I think coming back to that chamber of charities, yeah, you know, that conversation that's happening in twenty minutes will potentially lead to a oh. further collaboration moving forward. So that only helps that non competitive kind of yeah. Definitely And the the
1: time to have blue sky the time to ask what you're doing. Mm. I remember we were looking at, uh, again, I'm sorry to reference St Luke's again, but I just, because of my experience there, we were looking at end-of-life care, obviously, and Live Well were working in that space and we, myself and the chair of the trial Duncan Carroll kept saying we should get our charities together and of course they were slightly cautious about, well, what are you doing? And there was a bit of holding cards close to a chest. So we got the senior management teams of both in the room and just said, go around the table and just tell us what your challenges are. We didn't get all the way around the table before people were saying, but we can help you we're doing that. <laughs> and then the direct result of that meeting, Livewell and Salukes partnered to deliver all end-of-life care in the locality. Mm-hmm. Well, isn't that fantastic? And by just getting in a room and talking. So we will pick up this collaborative piece. Now, I know you're all fanatical about your particular charities, if you don't mind me saying that. Dwayne, particularly so. You've cycled from Oxford to Plymouth
4: for your charity, you fool! Um, I mean, you... Dedicated, well, simulated yes, person. Yeah, and James Greenacre was obviously part was of that Was he? One much, of my directors, yeah. i uh, put it on record, he was much faster, much fitter, was he? And uh, moaned uh, way less than me. Uh, but, um, <laughs> yeah, that was some years ago now, but as part of the Football League partnership with Prostate Cancer UK, we decided to ride from, starting from Oxford, United's football ground on the Wednesday, and arrive back at Home Park when Oxford played Plymouth on the Saturday. So how we made it back in four days fascinates me still to this day, but we raised some good money and more, we raised some kind of a, uh, good awareness of the cause and having that traditional, stereotypical male crowd of a certain age. And that's changing, of course. It was great just to raise awareness and showcase what a football club and a local charity can do to encourage people to get checked out. Some people do some particularly mad things for
1: charity. So have you got any stories about some daft things either your own staff or other people have done to raise money for you? I mean, just I can think of people doing all sorts of things. There's obviously the uh, skydived and done a half marathon and all that sort of stuff. But some people do come up with some strange ways of raising money.
2: One of our trustees, Paul Jarvis, recently, we have a, a Jeremiah Bear, is our avatar, if you like. met him. Um, you've met him. And that was, Jeremiah was the subject of a book that was written by one of our founders, Dr. Sheila Casti, who was also yeah. founder of St. Luke's. Yeah. And that book was written around a family of bears, and it was really to help the nursing staff of people facing the end of their life help children and families and sort of understand what was going on. So in a nutshell, Jeremiah is still around today. And if ever have you've seen him, it's a big costume, big head, and one big <laughs> head on him. And one of our trustees recently did around a seven-hour walk, starting at Climpton, oh, and put lots of people. Sort of, I think he took breaks, and then he started about five in the morning, and had lots of breaks and so on on the way. So, you know, raised lots and lots of awareness. But I, I thought it was pretty mad <laughs> to yeah. try that in a mascot suit. <laughs> yes,
3: yeah, so I did a fastnet yacht race back oh, in yeah. twenty eleven, and we got the boat with the Shekinah logos up the side. So fast that Yacht Races uh, from carries up around the Fastnet and back to Plymouth then, 600 miles. Yeah. That was a, quite a tough old kind of... It's
1: uh, a tough race. I mean, it was a documentary race. on last night.
3: I did watch it with interest, yeah. It was it 79? 79, the, 79 the, the total disaster. 21 two, people yeah. died. It was awful. Yeah, it was awful.
1: Yeah, yeah. I know somebody who was in that race and yeah. it was grim. Yeah, people put themselves through a lot for the it's charities, it, yeah. don't they? But it's because they're passionate about it, like you yeah. guys are. So I suppose... If you could ask government to change one thing, what would it be? What's the thing that's going to help you? John's ready. He's, he's <laughs> cocked and ready. I was, I I was just go. thinking
3: I'd be careful what I say.
1: No, you say what you like.
3: Well, change government to start with. Right. That's what I'd ask. Can we have you. a change in government? And I guess for any new government coming in... That there's something about, let's stop playing politics with the big ticket issues, you know, we, whether it's child poverty, whether it's housing, whether it's health. You know, these aren't parliamentary term issues. These are 20-, 30-year strategies. And what I'd love to see in this country is for politicians to drop the politics, come together, get some decent strategies around education, around housing, around health, and a long-term strategy. That's my plea for them.
1: So, John, we're apolitical. I have to work with whichever yeah. party is in. But I couldn't agree more that we need cross-party working on the big ticket items. Business support comes in short, sharp spurts. That's not how business operates. We need to think about the life cycle of business. We need to think about the long-term industrial strategy of the country. And we need to deliver things in a much more strategic, long-term view. And surely, no matter what colour you are politically, there are some key things we all agree on. Surely we all agree. I mean, it's the Barack Obama approach, apparently. If he's in a room and there's going to be a thorny conversation, he starts by what everyone's got in common. So nobody around this table would say, the hell service should be worse (laughs) nobody would say we shouldn't defend our nation but it's just what you find is actually you're agreeing on most of it small bits around the edges so we should agree on that so apart from
4: john's anything from you guys about what would you change what's the big change I mean we would certainly like, you know, longer term investments and trust into delivering a longer kind of behaviour change approach to community provision. So you know, there's examples where we've had pots of funding in the past, which we're great, we're a charity, we need funding, so we're never gonna turn one down. But you know, a twelve week funded project to support a young person back into work. Well, if you think about the aces and the traumatic experience and the chaotic life, it could take this particular young person twelve weeks to tell me his name or to trust me to allow him to make him a coffee. Yeah. So you know, when we're talking about high impact, high quality community provision whether that's using sport whether it's using food whether it's using psychology or whatever you know there needs to be a commitment that these projects are three years five years yeah, funded you know it, it could take three years to get someone to come out their shell and really buy into the project Well, by that time you're writing your summative report and saying cheers now we need to go and find a new funder it doesn't Absolutely. make any
1: sense. And from a government point of view, I found this a lot that the person that writes the check isn't always the person who it's affecting, if you assume I mean, the budget Literally. of the person it's affecting. So they need to start realizing that yes, it's an investment in you, but that's actually preventing other interventions, more expensive interventions further down the line.
4: Yeah. I mean it might sound maybe counterintuitive, but launch less pots or less projects, but longer term mm. investment in a particular cause so you can make a bigger impact. Okay, Antonia?
2: I think just very quickly for us, and to be specific around sort of our service delivery, we would like to see the government invest more in schools in terms of more understanding for teachers and peer to peer support in schools around bereavement. One child in every UK classroom has been bereaved of a sibling or a parent. That's national stats. The statistic is one in every 29 children. So that's one in every UK classroom. And, you know, we have a head on our board we have a teacher on our board we have two members of our staff team now who've come out of the teaching profession and you know the schools are just not resourced adequately enough Mm. and some teachers are incredibly good they're incredibly intuitive but actually we know that with some proper structured intervention with these children you know the outcomes later in life for them can be changed
1: and this comes down I guess again to that thing about what you're marked on So if a school's marked on its Ofsted report on its grades, that's one thing. And I understand why they then put resource into that. But you need to give flexibility to deliver something actually meaningful.
2: Well, absolutely. And I think just again, very quickly, if you think about... Last year, there were two youths that died by suicide in very, very quick succession, you know, and the impact on a school for that is just absolutely phenomenal. Mm, And there just needs to be better funding so a task force can be enabled. I mean, of course, we dive straight in and there are other organisations that do too, but that isn't particularly structured. That's just a heartfelt response and the right response. Mm. But I'd really like to see that on the government agenda.
1: Absolutely. So, look, we're nearly out of time, but I suppose I ought to ask, bear in mind we have a largely business audience, if you have one ask of business what would it be? How can business support your charities? What do you really want from them? You're going to say money, Mm -hmm. but I guess I ought to caveat that business is also going through a cost of doing business crisis. What else can they do, I suppose?
4: For us, yes, of course. As a charity, we like the idea of Cash is King and some CSR money. There must be a business with some CSR that will allow us to go and do some of our stuff. But for us, really, we'd like some charitable funding, but also the business to buy into volunteering and seeing it spent. I think the time of a large corporate dumping £50,000 worth of CSR budget and then just saying, come and see us in 12 months, yeah. it's good, but it's not great. We want that business to be part of that journey with us. We want mm-hmm. staff to come and see the impact. We want them to come and do Be Kind days or volunteering days. Mm-hmm. We want them to come and help us with our monitoring and evaluation. We want them to share knowledge. How we monitor and evaluate community provision might be completely different to how a social housing operator might measure impact, okay. completely different to how Princess Yachts might measure impact. So that kind of knowledge exchange, that best practice, Mm. alongside some funding, you know, would be really beneficial. So we're learning as well as providing. Yeah, Tanya.
2: All of that. (laughs) And I'm sure all of what John's going to say too. But for us specifically at the moment, we have a trustee vacancy. We would absolutely love somebody from the business community to get in touch and say that they might be, you know, sort of interested. We particularly like somebody with marketing Mm -hmm. experience and somebody that can help us in a way to raise the profile of what we do. We have a very good reputation across the city, but it's really around telling that specific story. So if anybody is listening in and feels empathy with the work of Jeremiah's journey and would like to consider being a trustee, give us a shout
1: absolutely and send me details we'll put it in our newsletter. So But much. I always said you know when I left St Luke's I did 10 years as a trustee seven as chair and they were always really kind to me when I left so, oh you've done so much great stuff and I said I got far more out of it than I ever put in you learn so much you get such a feeling of purpose you're doing some good so I can recommend for any of course Jeremiah's but any charity if you so, can be involved as a trustee you're using those skills you've got to support and finally John
3: All of the above. All of the above. But but yeah, yeah, I mean, also the pro bono support I think is yeah really interesting. So if I think about the move that we've got coming up to Stonehouse Creek, you know, I know it's difficult for businesses to give us five or ten thousand pounds, but they may be to give us six fire doors or give us some carpenters for a day, or and pro bono support is yeah hugely valuable for us. We've had some kind of great offers of support for the move anyway. So come and have a conversation. I guess is what I'd say. You know, to businesses, come and see what we do. Come and see how we spend our money. And ask us what we need.
1: Well, look, this has been absolutely, well, it's eye-opening for me and I've really enjoyed meeting you all. I also think we've got some work come out of it. I can just see my team going, oh no, Stuart, what have you agreed to now? But I definitely think there's something about uh, coming together, sharing like minds and peer support. I want to sincerely thank you not just for coming to do the podcast, but you guys do incredible things to make our communities better and to help people, which is basically what it's all about. So John, Tanya, Dwayne, thank you so much.
0: Thanks, Stuart. Thank you very much. Thank you. In conversation with is supported by Westcott's Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors, a personal and local service that values relationships above all else. Westcott's We're Here. Produced by Fresh Air Studios, full audio production services for business podcasts and corporate communications. Visit freshairstudios.com. Presented by Stuart Elford. Produced and engineered by Paul Philpott. Edited and mixed by Martin Burgess-Moon. Production support by Lisa Hartwell. Video content by Mark Stevenson. Copyright Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce and Fresh Air Studios Limited. All rights reserved.